Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leaders in Law's virtual discussion series. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Jasmine Grace of Jasmine Grace Outreach. Thank you for being with us today, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. So to start off, we'd love if you could give us kind of your story, a background, an overview of, you know, where you've come from and where you are today. Yes, um, I'd love to share. I'm so grateful to be here to be able to do this virtual meeting. Um, I'm glad that you guys do this, and thanks for, again, hosting and having me. Um, and help me spread the message about my work. To start off, um, I am a survivor of sex trafficking, of the commercial sex trade. I've been in um, long-term recovery from drug abuse for 13 years and been out of that life, clean and sober and off the streets 13 years. And how I got involved in that life is really necessary to let you know because that's really important piece that many people don't understand. Like how does someone get involved with sex trafficking? How does someone become a prostitute? Um, you know, why does women, you know, why do they end up in the commercial sex trade and addicted to drugs? Like, no little girl dreams of becoming a prostitute. No one wakes up someday and says, I want to be a drug addict. I want to be homeless. None of that just happens by choice or chance. And it's just like, unfortunately, a string of events that all just kind of end up happening together. And it's all based on our vulnerabilities. So for me, um, being vulnerable as a kid, I grew up in a big family um, in Revere from Massachusetts, big Italian Catholic family, but I had a mom who struggled severely with mental illness and a dad who worked a lot to provide for the family. And my brother was 10 years older than me and he wasn't really able to connect with me and have that nurture and care relationship because he had a lot of trauma and early abuse in his life. And so I was just kind of left on my own a lot from a young age. And this just left me vulnerable and naive and just really trying to fill that void inside. And for me, growing up, um, being in relationships with boys, I always thought that was the answer. Um, and I did experience sexual violence as a teen. I was raped at least twice by the time I was 14. But I don't remember the details because of the drinking and the drugging and the blackouts that would incur. Um, but I knew I had a lot of shame and I knew I had no self-esteem and low confidence but I also knew that I had to do something with my life. So I went to vocational high school. And at 18, I graduated from the Vogue in Wakefield with a cosmetology license. And I went to community college in Lynn to be a journalist. I thought I'd move to New York, write for a fashion magazine and you know, work at a fancy hair salon. Um, I had dreams and goals. And again, nothing was on my list of being a prostitute or a drug addict. Um, but just looking for that love and attention that like every human needs, right? As humans, we all need that belonging and love and attention. And that's what I was seeking. And I met a guy at a local nightclub and I was, you know, underage drinking. Of course, I shouldn't have been there. And it was very common um, for underage girls to be in this nightclub. It was called the Palace and it was in Malden. And um, a guy, you know, brought, bought me up to the bar. He bought me a drink, spent $7 on me. And before I knew it, I was impressed. You know, he's this guy, he's, he's handsome. He's got a lot of cash. He has jewelry. He's dressed really nicely and he's paying attention to me. And we exchanged phone numbers and got together a few days later. And he showed up in his champagne colored Mercedes Benz. And again, there was plenty of red flags, but nothing that I was paying attention to. Obviously he was probably a drug dealer, right? At that age of 20, 21 years old. He didn't come from a wealthy family. So, you know, where did he get all this money? Where did he get all this stuff? But unfortunately, that stuff was glamorized, right? That whole lifestyle, um, having all that fancy stuff was kind of, you know, you, you wanted to emulate that. You wanted to be hanging around with those kind of guys. And I just got into a relationship with him. 
and it was very naive and um, I fell in love and was trusting him. He met my family, came over for Thanksgiving and Christmas, really played that boyfriend role, um, got me to love and trust him. And during this time, it would be considered like the grooming process, right? Where he would um, buy me things, take me home to dinner, spend money on me. And before I know it, he would start planting seeds of doubt in my mind, say things like, well, you're having sex anyways, you might as well get paid for it. You know, I know a way we can make a lot of money. Um, why work at a hair salon? You can own one. You know, it's all these kind of things like that. He used to slowly introduce the sex trade to me, but in a way that glamorized it and made it seem like we could have a family and a business and all this money and the stuff. And so before you know it, um, I was invited to a college party, uh, State University, a bunch of guys that I knew went there. And they invite me to the dorm room and they tell me that a girl's gonna come and dance to be the entertainment. And as I'm there, um, we're all drinking and having a good time and she comes in to take clothes and entertain us and I realize it's my best friend. And I was shocked because I didn't know that she had gotten into this lifestyle. And I also, you know, didn't know the harms of the commercial sex. I didn't know that um, stripping was harmful. I thought, again, it was glamorized, it was fine, there was nothing wrong with it. Um, and we just cried and we ruined the party and got kicked out and I go back home to my boyfriend and I tell him what happened and by chance he knows her trafficker. So a couple days later he took me to her house. She was living in a nice affluent area of Chestnut Hill, right? Really expensive area. And there was a Range Rover and a BMW in the driveway and she had a big home. It was clean. It was beautiful. You would never think that a trafficker lives in this type of area women. And I go into her house and her bedroom is clean. It's beautiful. She has shoes and jewelry. She's not handcuffed to anything, right? She's not drugged. She's not kidnapped. Um, if anything, it looked like she had it all together, right? She had a Louis Vuitton bag. And at that time, that was like the epitome of success. And I just wanted to, you know, be doing what she was doing because it looked like it was great. And she didn't tell me the horrific side of it. She was just telling me how glamorized it was and that her man got her anything that she needed. She just had to go work and do these parties or go down this massage parlor in Connecticut. And so of course, I, you know, that kind of like sealed the deal. And so of course I said, okay, to my boyfriend, if I do this and I change my mind, can I stop? And of course he said, yeah, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. Well, that wasn't the case. And as soon as I started to change my mind and I didn't want to do it anymore, he started to use violence as a way to keep me under his control. And you guys know and are educated about what domestic violence is. This is kind of like domestic violence where the victim uses, I mean, where the abuser uses all types of ways to keep the victim oppressed times 10, right? Because of the shame of what the exploitation is doing to the person. Um, being in the commercial sex trade does deep, deep soul damage. It changes you from the inside out on a very deep level. Um, it's so degrading. It's so dehumanizing. Um, and then you add the violence and confusion of uh, an intimate partner, someone you thought you loved and trust doing this to you. It just takes so many years to undo all that damage. And I would end up under five years. And so it's, it's a long story written a book entitled The Grace Redeem available on Amazon. Um, it actually goes into all my journal from where because to keep a journal journals, write down things that I in and I would save we couldn't find them. Would end up writing a book later on based on those journals with present day reflections to show you know where I am today, how much hope there is for women even men that were stuck in this this life.
So yeah, that's a, a, a long but, uh, introduction to the story. Um, I can talk now about, about what I do now, if you want, if, or if you have any questions about you know, the vulnerabilities or anything like that. Yeah, um, so we do actually have some questions for you, um, kind of about current events and things like that as well. Like in, in light of current events with Jeffrey Epstein and the Me Too movement, they're kind of exposing more and more about the prevalence of sex trafficking in the United States. What do you think we can do as a community or as a nation to help survivors get the help they need and go on to lead happy and successful lives? Well, it, it's like, okay. It, it, first of all, we have to like edu educate ourselves on what it really is. Um, you know, like there's this whole children happening now, um, which yes, children do get trafficked. It is a, a real thing, um, but it's based on all our vulnerabilities. Um, you know, who's the most vulnerable? Kids, why? Because of their age. Uh, especially kids that are in the DCFO, that are chronic runaways, that are coming from unstable homes. So the best thing you can do if you're a healthy, stable adult that is aware and, and knows about this horrific crime is to become a mentor, be a foster parent, um, educate your own children, right? Have these talks, um, watch real documentaries, re read survivor books. Um, don't just like go onto that Hollywood side where it's all kind of glamorized, but um, just get down to the real nitty gritty stuff and be involved locally and try to help people like that. So you, so, you talk a lot about kind of the vulnerability of these people who then do get trafficked. How do you know you spot that vulnerability? How do you help you know nurture it before it gets to a place um, where you know they could become victims of something as horrible as sex trafficking? I think that lies in education. You need to have these conversations with kids way early on. Um, my kids are young. I have children that are under, I, I, they go from three to 17, but even my nine-year-old knows my story very age appropriately. Um, and I have talks about things with her and I'm, I'm paying attention to my older kids' social media accounts and educating them and having safeguards in place. You just talk about it. And I think that's it is that a lot of people for a long time didn't think sex trafficking happened in America because they hear the word sex trafficking, they think of other countries far away. When we think of the word prostitution here in America, we think that it's women that choose life and that it's their choice, it's their body powering, it's what they want to do and they're an adult, I have to say. Um, but the age into the commercial sex trade is between 12 and 14 years old. And so you have to have these conversations with kids early on and be attention to their social lives. So what are some of the warning signs that people can look for when they're looking at at-risk communities to kind of prevent this? So we, if, if something is happening, what can we do to pick up on that and notice something and get help? Yeah, so I mean, some of the clear, most obvious warning signs are, you know, this does happen to boys too, so I don't want to say that it just happens to girls, um, but any young kid who all of a sudden has um, all of a sudden expensive stuff, right, new cell phones or two cell phones, um, expensive sneakers or um, pocketbooks or anything like that, um, disappearing for a couple days at a time and then coming back around, um, maybe even um, social media posts that are questionable, um, text messages that are questionable, tattoos that aren't normal. Um, a lot of times um, victims will be forced by their traffickers to get like dollar signs or barcodes or their name um, in, in places like the neck or um, below the, the waistline. 
um, sudden drug abuse or alcohol use. Um, I'm trying to think, but th there's a really great website um, that does a great work. It's called Shared Hope International. Are you guys familiar with that? Okay, so Shared Hope is wonderful and they do a lot of um, state by state they grade a lot of the states based on their laws around human trafficking. They have a lot of preventative videos, a lot of ways to recognize the signs. Um, also Polaris Project or um, Polaris, they host the human trafficking hotline. So you can check out their website as well and they have all types of great information that you guys can learn and share with people. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and your, what your work is focused on now with Jasmine Grace Outreach and what has your effect been in the community? Yeah, so now um, I've been doing this work in the anti-trafficking movement probably seven years. Um, for the first four or five years of my recovery from drug abuse, I did not know I was a survivor of trafficking. Um, because of the shame and the stigma that surrounds prostitution and because sex trafficking wasn't being talked about as much then, um, I just kind of stuffed it. Right? I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there. I just wanted to pretend like maybe it never happened. You know, in my mind, of course, I knew I had a pimp. I didn't call him a trafficker because I didn't have that language, um, and I was just too ashamed to talk about it. And I had to get sober, and I had to put my life together. And that is really hard. If, you, if you've known anybody who's in recovery or on drugs, I mean, gosh, starting your life over from scratch is really hard. Um, but for me, I found the Christian faith and that community really supportive and they just loved me and took me under their wing. I went to a small church and the women were amazing and the men were appropriate and I just started building my life one step at a time. And then finally, um, I got married and we had children and within this marriage, I was triggered all the time <laughs> and I didn't know why. And this marriage was not anything like that he was doing purposely, but like it was just so hard to be intimate and trust somebody and be vulnerable like all those things that come with marriage that is so amazing i just could not do and um we separated and within that separation i sought deeper healing um and again because of my faith plays a big role it's a it's a great amazing story that's in the book but the healing came and i was at a small meeting one night um this woman was talking about the work she does it's called route one ministry and she literally was going um, up Route 1 Saugus to the strip clubs and going into the strip clubs being becoming friends with the dancers. And I could not believe like that someone did this. And she was using all of my old language, pimps, prostitutes, strip clubs. And I was just on fire and I had to tell her. And I said, I wanna help. How do I give back? You know, I did everything you've said. And she said, you're a survivor, you're amazing. And I was like, huh? Um, what you know and I couldn't believe these ladies were excited they were all clapping I mean I just told you my deepest darkest secret and there was no shame involved and now I no longer was a victim but I was a survivor and I wasn't looking out of the lens as a victim and so everything changed my whole world opened up um, I got a job at my life my choice as they hire survivors to be mentors to at-risk youth or girls who have been exploited and I started sharing my story. And every time I did, women would come up to me with tears streaming down their face, telling me they share the same story. And so I started realizing there was a lot of power in being vulnerable and transparent with these women. And I wanted to give back and I wanted to help them. And I wanted other women out there on the streets and in programs to know they were survivors too. And so I started making these bags and they were real simple. They just had soap, shampoo, conditioner, toothpaste in them, um, cute socks, nail polish, things I knew I would like, you know, coming off the streets into a program because you, you basically have nothing. 
and um, it blew up and people wanted to start giving me money and giving me donations. And so I turned it into a small ministry. That's where the Bags of Hope name came. And then time went on. I ended up getting um, one employee who's also a recovery coach. And we started giving out these bags and we give, give out over a thousand bags a year to women that are in programs or in, um, in the streets. And we get it all through donations. So we don't spend any of our own money on the stuff. And that's a really great way that the community can be involved by donating, hosting donation drives, learning about trafficking and so forth. So we've done that. Um, then I moved up to New Hampshire and I'm trying to spread the hope up here. Um, and so we changed the name to Jasmine Grace Outreach because we do a lot more than give out bags. We mentor the women. We've walked alongside two or three women that are, got a bag of hope years ago and now they're survivor leaders. We've offered them um, professional training and development and they share their stories and they get paid to do that so they make a living. Um, and that's really just fun and awesome to walk alongside these women and empower them. Um, and we've been partnering with programs up here in New Hampshire and Lowell and Lawrence area, so that is great. And um, yeah, we run groups in halfway houses, so eight to 10 weeks of survivor support groups, um, mentoring, public speaking, the bags. I can't think of what else, but we do a lot of good stuff. And um, because of COVID, we do a lot of stuff virtually now, but that's okay. We're still serving and still meeting the women where they're at. So we'll definitely have you plug the information for all that at the end so our listeners can help support that and get the information for that. Um, but kind of in addition to that, how do you think we can help shift the culture and stigma from victim to survivor so that less people have to kind of go through that shameful experience and rather just know that what they're doing and how they're getting better is amazing. Yeah, so again, it's talking about it. It's educating. Um, I think this whole like Save the Children, Wayfair, Jeffrey Epstein thing um, has done some damage because it's like glamorized it, you know, makes it sound like children are all children are kidnapped and stuffed in cages, right? And I mean, while that does happen, and I'm not saying it doesn't, it's not as common, right? So we just have to talk about it and um, have to be available and safe and supportive and non-judgmental and let people know, um, you know, again, if we notice those red flags or if we're in close relationships with somebody and they feel like they can trust us and have a conversation, um, just just be open and safe and non-judgmental and support survivors, again, in survivor-led organizations and get involved in anti-trafficking Oh, there's so many um, organizations in Massachusetts that do this work to be involved in and share it on social media and just talk about it. You just, you just have to talk about it. This is kind of going back to a little bit more about what you were talking about earlier as well, which is what other resources or influence kind of helped you along the way um, and have you, and sorry, the way that have like helped you become as successful as you are now, not just recovered, but helping other people. Um, it's, it's, it's community. It's having a safe community. Um, a lot of women, um, again, the close link between substance abuse and trafficking or prostitution is very closely linked. So a lot of these women get out, you know, they stop using drugs, they have to get sober, um, and they have, they need a safe community around them, right? So a lot of them go to AA or NA and they do this 12 steps. Some go to church. However they find their recovery is important to have a good, safe, supportive community around that. And then once you're sober and you, you know, have some stability in your life, you can start working on that trauma and that past um, history of trafficking and or the commercial sex trade by connecting with survivors. Um, being connected to a survivor 
walking like there's there's just nothing like it like i don't feel shame when i talk to another survivor because i know she can't judge me right because we've both been through the same thing so that's been really helpful and that's been really good is walking alongside other um women who have gone through the same thing so just having safe supportive community and again for me that was church and um i found great people in there so is there anything you think that we should do in terms of policy or on a community level in the government and politics side that can help provide more resources to different communities and different people? Well, I mean, there is a big push to decriminalize prostitution in New England area, especially it's happening around the country. Um, but there really is a big push, especially in Massachusetts and Vermont and New Hampshire, it happened. Um, they want to decriminalize completely the commercial sex trade prostitution. So, I am not for that. Um, I am for a partial decriminalization where I still think the victim should not be charged with prostitution because when a victim is charged with prostitution, it's so hard to get that off your record. And most of the time these women, again, I always say women, but men too, have this on their record and then it's so hard to rebuild their lives later, right? The, the charges on them, um, the quarry checks, they can't get apartments, they can't get jobs. So it really does a lot of damage. But you have to put it back to where it belongs on the traffickers and the buyers. So for a long time, there hasn't been a lot of um, F, like emphasis on the demand side. So I believe without a demand, there wouldn't have to be such a supply, right? So who is the demand? Unfortunately, it's mostly males, right? They purchase sex. So if we could talk about that more and, and teach boys, you know, not to become sex buyers. A lot of times pornography is the gateway to the commercial sex trade. Young boys, especially because of the internet today, they're um, watching porn, young as seven, eight years old, and then they're addicted. It does ex exactly the same thing as a drug to the brain, right? Changes it. And then a lot of times that's not enough, just watching it. And so they can potentially and most likely become buyers. So they start visiting strip clubs, that's not enough. And then the prostitution, um, and sadly, it just progresses, and a lot of times they want younger and younger victims, right? So um, watching the laws, paying attention to who's trying to push um, full decriminalization, um, have conversations about that, realize that the commercial sex trade is harmful. Um, I don't ever believe sex should be called work. I don't think it's empowering. I've never met any survivor that told me it was empowering or that they wanted to really be there. Um, and talk about the demand and have these conversations with guys. So kind of on the topic of having the conversation with, you know, both Sugdale men, women, and kind of younger kids, what do you think is the best way to integrate that into maybe the school systems or how to educate kids properly on how to not become, you know, a buyer, but also how to defend yourself from that kind of thing? Yeah, so again, education, right? Like I've gotten into plenty of middle schools and high schools because of a passionate teacher. So they didn't necessarily want to go through the um, Department of Education, but having me come in and speak to the whole assembly really, really, really helps because they hear a real life story. You know, um, it's even received by the boys, um, you know, because they can identify maybe their mother has been in an abusive relationship, their sister, whatever. Um, but they just have to hear from a real life story, possibly. I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic if they added in, you know, how to stay safe and how not to become addicted to porn <laughs> and um, how, to, how to be respectful and notice the red flags of a trafficker like if they taught that in school that would be amazing 
So how can survivors locate some of these resources if anyone is in need? Yeah, so um, the Massachusetts Coalition Against Human Trafficking is a great website. They have a ton of information um, for Massachusetts. Um, they can visit my website, jasminegrace.org, if they want to connect with me, or even people who aren't survivors, you know, if they just want this information, for sure. Um, and again, Shared Hope has great information. Polaris has great information. Um, I think those are just the, the main, main sites that you can find education and resources. So kind of lastly, we'd love um, if you could maybe give your website specifically, I don't know if that was later on, but just to kind of consolidate it, as well as maybe like your book and stuff like that, and just how people, specifically like your email or your website or whatever works best for you, how people can reach you to help or to be helped. Yeah, sure. And um, also if they would like to ever host an event, again, we do a lot of public speaking and education, um, even in COVID times, maybe we can come out and host an event or do it virtually. So um, the website is jasminegrace.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Jazz Grace Outreach, Instagram, um, and my email is jasminemarino13 at gmail.com. So you can reach me there too, and if I can be a support or a help for anybody out there, we would love to do that too. And the book is on Amazon, I guess. I, maybe I said that earlier, but it's called The Diary of Jasmine Grace, Traffic Recovered Redeemed. So that is all the time we have for today, but we just want to thank our Partners America's Promise Alliance, Nancy Donahue, and the Greater Lowell Community Foundation for their support. Thank you to all of our listeners and viewers, and most importantly, thank you to Jasmine for being with us today and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks for having me.